Brethren, as you find your seats, finding your Bibles, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and verses 7 to 13. We come to the six of seven letters, and that is to the, the letter of our Savior to the church at Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And there's seven verses where drop off the last verse as we typically do and just look at verses 7 to 12, though I hope to come back to that reoccurring phrase at the end of the letters here before we end these seven letters. But nevertheless, we'll see in the six verses that we'll see six distinct points. And we'll find in verse 7, beginning with verse 7, a description, and then in verse 8, a commendation, In verse 9, a submission. In verse 10, a preservation. Verse 11, an exhortation. And then verse 12, a motivation. So each verse has its own heading tonight. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Six points from six verses. But before we come to a description of our Savior in verse 7, let me just say a few words about the town of Philadelphia. And I want to do so with the help of John Scott. He said this, or John Stott, excuse me. He said the town of Philadelphia was situated about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was the next town which the postman would reach on his circular tour of the seven churches in Asia. The previous letter to Sardis contained almost unmitigated censure. The letter to Philadelphia is one of almost unqualified commendation. Notice our Savior's description in verse 7. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David. Our Savior, first of all, provides a description of his character and then authority. Notice his character. These things says he who is holy, he who is true. In other words, he's the holy one. And the true one. Now by holy is meant 
he's morally pure, and he's separate from all creation. You know that the concept of holiness has those two components to it. There's purity and separation. The word really means separate or distinct from. He's morally pure because he's altogether different from, separate, perhaps we can say, other than all of creation. So God's holiness is really his other thanness. And here we find that Christ is holy. He's alone holy. He's alone natively holy. He's alone perfectly holy. Now the term true, though, isn't always easy to really understand. It really brings with it a couple of different things wed together. At its heart, it means truthful or faithful. So he is holy, that is, he's pure, and he's trustworthy. But it actually has a little bigger idea than that. All that God has promised to man is true or fulfilled in him. So he's faithful, but perhaps we can better say he's God's faithfulness to man. God had promised from the beginning a Messiah to save sinners. And he is that Messiah. He's the true one. Yes, he is truthful in and of himself. He's trustworthy. You can believe him. He'll do everything that he said. But he's also the truth in that he's the embodiment of all that God has promised. He is the Holy One and he is the True One. And then notice his authority. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Scripture often uses the imagery of key to refer to authority. Christ has authority over the house of David. That's what it means when it says that he possesses the key of David. He has the authority over David's house. And what is David's house? Or what is David's kingdom? But the church. It's David's kingdom because David was the king over Old Testament Israel that was a shadow or a type of New Testament Israel. Jesus is David's greater son. Remember that God promised David that he would have a son who would sit on his throne and rule over his kingdom forever. And that, of course, is fulfilled in Christ who rules over his New Testament Israel forever. For example, think of these words, Luke 1 and 32. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now you know that by house of Jacob, it's meant in the Old Testament, the physical nation of Israel. The physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The New Testament fulfillment of that is the church. And that's why it says here that Christ will sit on his, on the, on his father David's throne and rule over David's kingdom. But this last phrase in verse 7, 
he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, actually is a quotation from Isaiah 22. Look back to there very quickly. Isaiah 22, and notice verse 22. I'll look at verse 20. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant um, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. Now these are actually words of condemnation, to Shebna, back in verse 15, who was second only to the king. He had a royal position and authority. Because he was wicked, God is taking it from Shebna, and he's giving it instead to Eliakim, in verse 20 and following. Eliakim, of course, the son of Hilkiah. So Eliakim, really here, is just a shadow or a type of Christ to come. Remember in the New Testament, you have a similar idea. God has taken the kingdom away from physical Israel because of their wickedness, and he's giving it to Christ who is faithful and true. And so, by the phrase, he who opens and no one shuts, refers to entrance and removal in and from the kingdom of God. In other words, Christ himself has authority and Christ alone has authority to allow entrance into his kingdom and to remove from his kingdom. For example, look with me to Matthew 16 and verse 19. Matthew 16, 19. Our Savior's words to Peter. Verse 18. And I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here Peter, as a representative of the leadership of the church, is promised the keys of the kingdom. That is, Christ rules the church through his ordained leadership to which he's given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever is bound on earth is bound on earth and bound in heaven is bound in heaven. In other words, the church has authority under Jesus to bring into and to remove from it. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is this. Fundamentally, it's only in and through him that poor sinners have access to God and thus have access to the kingdom or to the church of God. For example, think of these words. I think they're saying something very similar in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I am the truth. I am holy, I am true, I'm the only way to the Father. I'm the only way 
into the kingdom. I'm the only way into the church. And so our Savior is reminding his church at Philadelphia that he is holy and that he's the truth and that he has the keys of David and he and he alone has the authority which he's invested in some sense into the leadership of the church of allowing into the kingdom and removing from the kingdom. All right, that's a description. Notice in verse 8 then, accommodation. Revelation 3 and verse 8. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now here we find that our Savior commends them for three closely related reasons. By an open door is likely meant an opportunity of ministry. An opportunity of ministry. Our Savior has opened up an opportunity of ministry for this church. An opening for ministry by his blessing to preach the gospel through which he's going to bring into his kingdom poor sinners. I think this is what you find, for example, in Colossians 4. Look at verse 2. Colossians 4.2. Continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So here Paul is asking the church to pray for him that God would open up a door of opportunity that he might preach the gospel and that sinners would be saved. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. In other words, he is providentially providing them with opportunity for ministry. And then, as I've said, he commends them for three things. Notice first, they had a little strength. Now, this phrase likely refers to their small size. They were small in number and resources, and yet they were faithful with little. They were a faithful church even though they were little in size and in resources. One man said, as the world counts strength and numbers and influence, the church did not appear all that great. So perhaps from a worldly perspective, they looked very humble. They were small in size, and yet they were faithful. And because of that, he was going to open up further doors of opportunity that they might be a blessing to others. They were faithful in little, and thus he was going to give them more opportunity to be faithful in much. Secondly, they kept his word. That is, they believed and obeyed his word. They kept his word in their confession, in their heart, in their lives, and in the church. And thirdly, they did not deny his name. And this refers to their testimony before men. 
even though men hated them, even though they were small and despised and ridiculed, they nevertheless held fast to his name. They did not deny Jesus' name before men. But notice, brethren, it was because of their faithfulness that our Savior is here opening up greater opportunities for them to minister. They were faithful and little, and thus he was giving them more opportunity of ministry. And that brings us thirdly to submission, verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie to worship or bow down, probably is a better translation, to bow down before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, by synagogue of Satan, of course, is meant unsaved physical Jews who claimed to be God's people but were not. And that's why it says they lie. They were physical Jews, but they were claiming to be God's people. And that's the part they were lying about. They were physical Jews who were unsaved. And as we've seen before, physical Jews who are unsaved are not God's people. If physical Jews who are, who are unsaved claim to be God's people, then they're lying. That's what this text says. Now, by having these liars, these physical Jews who were unsaved and were claiming to be God's favored people, by having them come and bowing before God's people is likely meant or a reference to the day of judgment when the church judges the world. Now, it's possible though I don't think it's likely, it's possible that he's talking about them coming in penitence and acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah and that the church is truly his people and then joining them and worshiping with them. It's certainly true that that happened. There were elect people among the Jews and they were being saved. Right? That's what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Just because they, as a, as a people, rejected him and he rejected them, it didn't mean that there wasn't individual elect Jews among them that would be saved. But I think because of texts that Jesus is here alluding to from the Old Testament, it's more likely that he's referring to the Day of Judgment, when they will acknowledge that Jesus they will be forced to acknowledge that Jesus is the holy and true one and that his church, not the Jews, but the church made up of physical Jews and Gentiles. The church is his beloved bride who he loves. Now there are many texts in the Old Testament, I think, that say this. Let me just point you to perhaps one as an example. Look at Isaiah 60 and verse 14. Isaiah 60 and 14. And the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. In other words, there's somebody coming 
to another group of people, bowing before them and acknowledging that they are, in fact, the beloved of God. And there's many other texts, isn't there, brethren, in the Old Testament that seem to say the same thing. It's possible, again, as I've said, that they're coming and bowing in, in humble repentance and faith and acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah and joining themselves to the church and thus worshiping God with the church, becoming a part of the church. But here it seems like it's more likely a reference to the Day of Judgment when the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, will be forced to bow the knee and confess, not from the heart, but out of, but out of necessity, confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that the church is God's beloved people. Now you find the same thing, for example, to another, uh, uh, in, in one of the other letters back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end. In fact, this phrase sounds very similar to, to ours. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Remember, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Remember, that's, that's a quotation from Psalm 2, 9. It's all, it's for mostly a reference to Christ sitting on his throne and putting all of his enemies in the last day under his feet. But here it's applied to us because we're in union with him and we're one with him. And so in that sense, we're sitting as it were on the throne with him and his enemies are our enemies or our enemies are his enemies and our enemies will be forced to acknowledge Jesus is Lord and we are his people. I think that's probably what you find here in verse 9 of chapter 3. And that brings us to verse 10 and a preservation. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, unfortunately, this phrase is probably even more difficult than the previous one. There's a couple possibilities in terms of its meaning. Let me just give you what I think to be most likely the meaning of our Savior. By the phrase, the hour of trial, it refers to an intense time of persecution through which the church would be kept or enabled to endure. Thus, when he says he would keep them from the hour of trial, he's not talking about a literal hour, 60 minutes. He's talking about a predetermined, limited time of intense persecution. And when Jesus says he'll keep them from it, I don't think it means he will remove them from it, but he will see them through it. In fact, the word from can be translated through. He will keep them through it. In other words, he will preserve them through that season of intense persecution that would come upon the whole known world of the first century. This is what Barnes believes it means. He says this, that is, commenting on verse 10, 
I will keep you that you shall not sink under the trials which will prove a severe temptation to many. This does not mean that they would be actually kept from calamity of all kinds, but that they would be kept from the temptation of apostasy in calamity. He would give them grace to bear up under trials with a Christian spirit and in such a manner that their salvation should not be endangered. He shall keep them from falling away because of the intense time of trial to come. Now, it's also possible that he's talking about that intense time of persecution to come prior to Jesus' return. Because it does seem, doesn't it, that the scriptures say, before our Savior come, that these trials and tribulations will intensify. But it really doesn't make any difference, does it, if he's talking about those trials that, were, that was about to fall upon the first century church, or if he's talking about that hour of trial that's going to come just before Jesus returned, or if, he's going to, or if he's talking about any other type or any other season or time of trial between those two, the point being, Jesus says he's going to keep his church through it. He's going to preserve his church through it. In other words, he's going to keep them from falling away because of the intensified persecution. And that brings us then to number verse 11 and the fifth thing, and that is an exhortation. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Unfortunately, again, there's some debate as to what Jesus here means. The most obvious question here is this. When is Jesus coming? He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. It can mean that he's about to come quickly in that he's going to strengthen them to enable them to endure the hour of trial. Or else, more likely, it's a reference to his second coming and quickly there can really be understood as suddenly. Behold, I'm coming suddenly or quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Either I'm coming to strengthen you, hold on, I'm coming to strengthen you to preserve you through the hour of trial, or else you need to, I will keep you, you have to persevere, but I will preserve you through the hour of trial all the way up until my second coming. I'm going to keep the church through all of the ages until I come back suddenly in my second coming. Though they were small, they had what they needed, and Jesus tells them to hold fast to it. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast to the word that you haven't denied. Hold fast to me, which the word tells you about. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. And I think by no one take your crown is meant that they needed to endure to the end, either through that time of trial, or else he's talking about to the end of their life. Brother, one thing that's, that's, that's evident here in this letter to the church of Philadelphia is that while Jesus is promising to preserve his church, he's also exhorting them to persevere to the end. Over and again, he tells them to endure and to persevere. And then he promises them that he will Preserve them. 
And so they have to endure, even though Jesus is promising them that he will keep them from falling away from the faith, they have to nevertheless hold on to and cling to the faith. And we find both of them there, don't we? And then he gives them this motivation in verse 12. It's really a threefold uh, motivation. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now, these are really three ways of saying the same thing. He's talking about, ultimately, our glorification. And he's talking about our glorification and participation in the new heavens and earth, where in the new Jerusalem shall dwell forever. I think he's talking about what John would elaborate on in chapters 21 and chapter 22. He talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. It's the perfected and glorified church, brethren, in the new heavens and earth with Christ within her midst for all eternity. And so there's eternality here, and there's glorification here, and there's eternal perfect fellowship here. All of these ideas are wed together in this threefold incentive. Well, that brings me then to five very brief observations about the church. Brethren, even though there are some admittedly phrases in this sixth letter that are probably the most difficult to understand out of all the letters... I want to suggest to you in closing that there are at least these very clear observations about Jesus' church. All right? Notice number one. The church is ruled by Christ. Christ alone ultimately has the authority to give access to his kingdom, brethren. And this is actually very good news. Christ possesses authority to give poor sinners access to to his kingdom. Christ has the keys of David. And that means ultimately that you poor sinner can have access to this kingdom in and through him. How does a person enter the kingdom of God? How does a person have access to God the Father? But through God the Son, the mediator the Holy and True One, the One that was promised way back in Genesis 3 and 15. He's now come. There's now a way to have access back to God. And this is why I say, to start our time together, that Fanny Crosby song in hymn 667. Do you remember how the refrain goes? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. In other words, he's made a way, brethren, that we may all come in. And a second lesson is this, our observation. 
The church is not only ruled by Christ, but secondly, the church is used by Christ. I mean, look how this goes. Jesus has the authority to open up doors and to close them. And yet, he says, I've opened up a door of opportunity for you. In other words, I'm going to use you, church in Philadelphia, as the means through which to bring poor sinners in. Or if you go back in your mind to those words in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church, and yet he, and yet he uses us, brethren as co-workers, as co-laborers with him in the gospel to build that church. And the interesting thing here is, is that Jesus is using a church that had a little strength. Brethren, you know that it's not largeness that Jesus uses, it's faithfulness. That Jesus uses. I know your works. Verse 8. I know you're faithful. I know that you're small. I know that you're weak. I know that you may be few in number and resources. But you're faithful with what I've given you. And thus I'm going to open up more opportunity for you. And I'm going to use you to build my church. Brother, for the last 20 years or so, there's been a rise, hasn't there, in megachurches. And, and a church can be big and faithful. A church can be small and faithful. A church can be big and unfaithful. A church can be small and unfaithful. But here's my point. We can be small, brethren, in size. We can have a little strength and yet be used of God. Little churches can be faithful churches. Little churches can be useful churches. And we have as an example the church in Philadelphia. The church is ruled by Christ. Secondly, the church is used by Christ. Thirdly, the church is loved by Christ. Again, look at verse 9. I will make them come and worship before your feet, bow before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Brothers, there's coming a time when all men will know the true identity of the church of God as the beloved bride of Christ. And think of this church in Philadelphia, small in size, despised perhaps by the world, or even in our day despised by other churches perhaps. There's a little church, a little faithful church with just a handful of people faithfully serving Jesus in a world that hates him. Holding fast to his word, not denying his name, being faithful with the little that they have. And despised by the world, despised by the religious hypocrites. And yet all the while loved of Jesus, And there's coming a time when all of the church's enemies will bow the knee to King Jesus and they will confess he's Lord and they will confess that God's people, the church, is his beloved people. And then fourthly, the church is 
one with Christ. And it's for this reason that her enemies are his enemies. Brethren, stop and think about it. We are enthroned with Christ on his throne. And that's why it says that they're going to come and bow to us. In fact, actually, they're, they're coming to bow to Jesus. But they're bowing to us because we are one with Jesus on his throne. And because we're one with Jesus on his throne, this text says that they're going to, in fact, come and bow before us. Just as every knee will bow and tongue confess Jesus is Lord, so they will bow before his bride and confess publicly that they are his beloved people. And then a fifth thing we learn about the church is this. The church is kept by Christ. As I've already pointed out, brethren, this text, this passage balances or blends together, it weds together our need to persevere in his promise of preserving us. And you know that the one is certain because the other is certain. He keeps the church from being destroyed by her many enemies. Yes, one day our enemies, his enemies, will bow before us. But in the meanwhile, they hate us, brethren. This is what this passage is saying. And there's a time of trial, of intense persecution. And how is it, or why is it, that his little... I mean, look look how the church is described here. As a, as a little thing. In the midst of an of a angry and hostile world. How is it that this little church is going to endure through all of that to the end? How is she going to endure through this hour of intense persecution and difficulty? How will she survive, brethren, when surrounded by all of her foes? Well, here's how she survives by surrounding all of her foes. The Lord Jesus promises that he will enable them to endure through the hour of tribulation. You know, there's only one other time where this exact phrase is found, and that's back in John 17. And I'll turn you there in closing. Look at verse 15, John 17, 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. These are, of course, Jesus' words to his father, with reference to his little church in Philadelphia. There she is, surrounded by all of her foes, all of her angry enemies. Don't take her out, Father. Don't take her out of this world. I pray that... I, um, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, brethren, that doesn't mean that he's going to keep us from the temptations of the evil one, but it means he's going to keep us from the destruction of the evil one. That he'll allow the evil one to tempt us. He'll allow the evil one to molest his beloved people, but he'll never allow the evil one to destroy his people. That's the promise. That's the point of Jesus' prayer. And I think that's the point of Jesus' promise 
back to his church in Philadelphia. He will ensure that his beloved people persevere or endure through the hour of trial. The church is ruled by Christ. The church is used by Christ. The church is loved by Christ. The church is one with Christ. And the church is kept or preserved by Christ. Brethren, whatever else, Jesus' letter to the church at Philadelphia says, it surely says those five things. Well, in closing then, we want to uh, stand and sing a hymn that... uh, It's going to be projected before the throne of God above. And as we sing this hymn, brethren, keep in mind all that we've learned with regards to why the church will persevere. Mike, are you going to play this or are we going to sing an a cappella? Are you open?